everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth Podcast, which is a part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect the ocean. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. And today on our show, we have fabled oyster farmers from Stony Creek, Jonathan and Emily Waters. Welcome to the show, John and Emily. Yeah, and good morning. Thank you for having us. Really excited to chat today. Yeah, good morning. It's, a, it's a, such a pleasure to have you both here on our podcast. And I always like to start my show with a little history, and I can't wait for everyone to hear about your story. But first, I wanted to tell our listeners about the Thimble Islands because they're a big part of your lives and because we'll be discussing them as part of your narrative. Now, I myself, I'm not a native to New England, and I only learned about the Thimble Islands once I started my work at Southern Connecticut State University because Outer Island is used by the university for ecological studies. An outer island is a five acre island and it's part of the Thimble Islands, which is an archipelago consisting of small islands in Long Island Sound. Located in and around the harbor of Stony Creek in the southeast corner of Branford, Connecticut. Now the archipelago of islands made up of Stony Creek pink granite bedrock were once the tops of hills prior to the last ice age. And as a result, the Thimble Islands are much more stable than most of the islands in Long Island Sound. And John and Emily, I have to tell you, I took a boat tour of the thimbles two years ago, and I was just in awe. I mean, they were so beautiful and unlike anything I had ever seen before. Right. And our tour also talked about the famed Captain William Kidd <laughs> and how the thimbles, right, were a favorite roaming ground of his. And um, I, I'm sure you know what local legend states, some of his riches may be buried there. <laughs> um, so, Jonathan, you grew up in the Thimble Islands and you raised your family there in this magical place. Maybe you could give... Uh, our listeners, a sense of your passion for these beautiful islands and the waters that surround it. And maybe also, could you paint a picture of what life was like for you growing up and, you know, how things have changed? Sure. Uh, um, yeah, I moved uh, out when I was uh, four years old. My father um, was uh, a caretaker on Cuttentoo Island, and uh, we lived there in the summers. Uh, there was no electricity. Um, we had gas lights, gas refrigerator. Of course, in, the, in those times, in the early 50s, there were uh, no cell phones, uh, no telephone. Mm. Um, so when you went out and lived there, you were, uh, you were really there. And one had to be um, pretty... Uh, you know, careful. And there was a, um, uh, for instance, we would all wear whistles uh, and we would communicate back and forth on, on the island, uh, my brother, uh, my mother, my father himself, um, <clears throat> as to uh, one whistle was, where are you? Two whistles, you know, here I am. Uh, um, come when you're ready. And uh, you know, a bunch of blasts would be come quickly. I need you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. uh, and, um, you know, it was, uh, uh, very, very, it always felt extremely special to me. I, you know, there was, um, I mean, the whole experience, uh, we did a lot of fishing. Um, we did, uh, clamming, oystering, mussels grew, uh, you know, on the docks, there were, uh, we had lobster traps, we, um, you know, we really kind of lived off of what we could catch and, and uh, uh, maybe make a trip 
to um, to shore uh, once a week, you know, to get provisions, mm-hmm. something like that. My uh, my father was uh, he would commute. Um, there was a ferry boat that would come and pick him up, and in order to uh, call the ferry, uh, one had to arrange. Uh, raise an orange ball off the uh, flagpole the ferry captain would see that and he would come and uh, come and pick you up so uh i had a friend over that lived over on money island and uh when we wanted to get together uh we would signal each other with flags um Hmm. because (laughs) no no phones right? right yeah and uh uh yeah so it it was it was um it was a wonderful sort of uh, simple, beautiful life. And, and I, you know, I was inspired to it, um, uh, you know, and it's really, really why I ended up back here and, um, you know, and, and in business. Uh, also, when I was a child, uh, the oyster company, which was Stony Creek was the town there, the village that um, Thimble Islands are right offshore. And uh, the two main, um, uh, it was fishing, farming, and quarries. And uh, the fishing really was the, uh, at that point, was the oyster business. Hmm. And it was uh, ES Ball, and uh, they were still active in the, uh, in the early 50s and 60s. And uh, I watched these boats. I, I knew a lot of the fellows that ran them and worked on them. And I sort of fell in love with 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 them, and um, you know I've had a lifelong affair with with uh, oysters and oyster boats. Mm. Yeah, I know it sounds magical when you talk about it, but when you think about all the modern day conveniences that we have that weren't available then, like it was interesting to hear you say about raising the flag or you know being able to whistle just to stay in touch with your family while you were on the island. Now, Emily, you're in business with your dad and you were raised on the Thimble Islands as well. And you had mentioned commuting to school by boat, not bus. Can you talk a little bit about what life was like for you as a child and then how that impacted your path that you took in life and where you're at now? Certainly. So starting out from kindergarten, I was in the afternoon kindergarten section because you couldn't guarantee that first thing in the morning, it wouldn't be too foggy to get on the boat and make it to shore. So we, (laughs) my parents planned accordingly and made sure that we always had a little leeway in the morning to, to sort of get to the things we needed to do. So I would take, um, my mom, we've all sort of had our own boats. Uh, My mom would drive her boat into shore with me aboard and uh, then hop in the car and go to school. And that continued through uh, really high school, actually. So we would be on the island when I was younger for a longer period of time, really April to late October, early November. Um, But as I got older and homework became a little (laughs) bit more of a factor in my life, uh, my parents and I realized that having um, electricity full-time wouldn't mm. be helpful because out on the island we um, had gas powered uh, lights and all of those things so when it got dark one sort of read by lantern or candlelight and then you went to bed so we transitioned to a little bit less time 
on the island once we were, I was in the you know, school year, sort of late middle school, early high school. Um, but that experience on the island really fostered two things for me. Um, one, a love of reading. That was, as an only child, um, that was sort of my go-to activity. And I still, to this day, love that. And it has allowed me to sort of dig into a variety of worlds, uh, both in the fiction and nonfiction realm. And an appreciation for nature and, and the environment and conservation and all of those things. Um, in addition to not having electricity, we collected rainwater as our primary water source. We would bring um, potable, drinkable water from shore in five gallon jugs, hmm. but you had to be mindful of how much water you were using because we were dependent on the rainfall for water for showers, the toilet, um, sinks, things along those lines. And that has carried forward, right? The idea of uh, making sure that you're turning off lights when you're leaving rooms, that you are- you're thrifty with water. Yeah. Thr being thrifty with water, exactly. Not leaving the tap running when you, you know, go, oh, I forgot a glass, that sort right. of thing. Uh, be being mindful of all of that. And then there was this constant interaction with the marine environment. Um, whether it was fishing off the dock and you know playing in the rocks and sort of in little tidal pools and things like that, or having conversations with my dad about his experiences out on the water as he was oystering, or just sort of you know living in this community, mm. bringing that environmental component and you know the precious nature and how really important it was um, to the forefront. So that was always part of my upbringing. Yeah. And I have to say, I wish more people had an upbringing like that because we really need to be conscious of water and how we use it and, you know, how precious it really is. And um, I know you had mentioned your oystering and I know many fine dining establ establishments from, you know, Boston to Maryland are now featuring Connecticut oysters on their raw bars. Um, Connecticut, Connecticut oysters are expanding their position in the marketplace. And um, I know that they have like a distinct flavor and profile. John, I know you've been asked to curate a selection of Connecticut oysters on the half shell for specialty events. Yeah. And you had said that you started oystering, you know, you started oyster farming on a small boat. And um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the evolution of your business and, sure. you know, maybe talk about the politics you had to deal with. And um, I think you, you have mentioned oyster politics as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, I started with a 24-foot uh, a, a uh, Brockway scow. There was a fellow up, uh, Earl Brockway, a famous uh, boat builder, um, uh, skiff builder up in the, on the Connecticut River. He's uh, dead and gone now, but uh, actually we, we still have a 16-foot scow that was built in 1964 that we still use daily. But he... Um, uh, I selected a 24 foot scow uh, down and back and uh, he hooked the cable up to the back of a Cadillac and drove it up <laughs> and we plopped it on a trailer, <laughs> brought it down. And uh, one winter, uh, I put it in the back of uh, Captain Michael Infantino's, uh, who actually might have run that tour boat that you went on. Yeah. Uh, in his backyard, uh, built a shed and uh, put 
put together a little oyster boat, 24 foot oyster boat. And because uh, I had a, I had a dream about this and wanted to, uh, um, you know, I knew that the, the oyster company had, had um, sort of faded out and that, uh, you know, I, I wanted to bring it back to the thimbles. So um, I started with this small boat and myself and I uh, secured this uh, help and the support from this uh, uh, company up the street, uh, Connecticut Shellfish. It's a wholesaler. They were uh, said that they would, I, I think I was rigging the boat down at the dock and the manager walked down the dock and he said, Johnny, I want to buy everything you catch. Hmm. So I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and at first, you know, that's what I thought it was all about. Uh, you know, it was just putting them in bags and on the dock. And, yeah. uh, so, you know, I started working by myself and, uh, after a while I realized that I could, uh, if, if, if I hired somebody, I could, um, double my production and, uh, uh, it was safer and everything. So, uh, uh, you know, that continued. One thing led to the next. And pretty pretty soon I was down and uh, I used to go down into Maryland, Virginia. And um, there were a lot of boats down there and wood boats and uh, inexpensive. And uh, so I'd buy, buy, buy a boat down there and... Um, I, you know, I wanted to, something that was a little bit bigger and a little more comfortable because um, we were working uh, year round. And one thing we didn't mention when we were earlier was we were, was the wind. Uh, you know, you're, you're constantly uh, dealing with the wind and, and especially in the winter months. So it tends to blow a lot harder. And, um, you know, like Emily and her mother would, you know, commute to school, <laughs> gales. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, you know, yeah, you, you mentioned that, but I mean, it's true. When you were talking about traveling, Emily, with your mom, I was just picturing, you know, like this idyllic little boat ride, not thinking about, you know, about <laughs> your storms. <laughs> yeah, kitted out in foul weather gear, you know, covering everything with a tarp so that you're Oh God! Doesn't get wet. Um, yeah, I was, it was a little hairy sometimes. But <laughs> yeah. Some days were beautiful too. So, <laughs> well, we had, you know, we had good boats, so that was yeah. that was uh, you know that helps them, and we're we're careful, you know. So uh, yeah, you know, so so I you know I built I built the uh, you know I built the business up. To, uh, at one point, I had three boats working and uh, uh, six guys and. Uh, we were all, uh, usually, you know, two boats were working one oystering, one hard clamming and the other one might be up for repairs. And, uh, um, sometimes, you know, we, we were running all three and, uh, you know, things, things were good. There were markets were good. And, uh, uh, I was selling into New York and, and, uh, uh up to the Cape uh as well uh with the oysters and um and the hard clamps so uh the some of the local the, the local politics were uh, a little tough with the the oyster politics uh you know as when i started there were very few people um in the state uh there were a handful of 
of uh, individual companies who were who were operating. Uh, now it's now it's very different. I think there's seventy or eighty uh, individuals, mm-hmm. um, but at at the time it was even smaller than that. And um, uh, and you know I I think that for the most part most most of the fishermen and oystermen farmers uh they're you know pretty independent people and uh uh tend to tend to sort of um you know uh sort of mind their own business but it's it it's a little bit like a chess game because it involves um property bottom uh you know certain areas are better than others um Mm. you're working a lot with the uh local municipalities um so you're making deals with uh towns and also making deals with the state their um bidding uh processes uh where you bid bid the ground out uh and you can be competing with people uh in that respect um you know we had uh there's, it's a highly regulated business. It's uh, when I started, it wasn't quite so, but uh, it, it's become uh, and much to to the advantage of the cons- consumer. Uh, the the business is um, FDA uh, um, monitored. Uh, it's monitored by the state. It's monitored by uh, the local shellfishing uh, commissions, and um, well, and also, I mean, there's, 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 uh, everyone has to go through uh, courses in order to be because you're handling uh, food process, uh, you know, food right. processing. So, I once compared notes with a uh, uh, this fellow I know, a blaster, uh, who uh, was running some dynamite out to one of the islands, and we. We were comparing some of the record keeping that we uh, that we both had to do, and uh, it was very similar. You know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but this has all been uh, been pretty good, and and even though it, it's onerous uh, for the oysterman because you end up uh, being a bookkeeper as well as everything else. Um, right. The uh, uh, the product is uh, signed, sealed, and delivered, and it's moved quickly. And um, you know, it's just uh, as far as consumer confidence in, in the in the product that's being produced, it's uh, you know, I I think it's a really good thing. Yeah, well, without a doubt, I know that uh, Connecticut is you know. Um, one of the top uh, oysters that that are out there, especially the Long the Long Island Sound oysters. And John, speaking of uh, the oyster industry, you've seen your share of hardships. You had mentioned parasites that had nearly wiped out the shellfish in the 1990s. Yes. Uh, yeah, maybe you could talk about that time and how it impacted your business and the industry overall. Basically, there was a, a pandemic, or you know, of um, uh, these two viruses, MSX and Dermo. Um, Came in. There was a a, uh, a lot of oysters here. Uh, we were heavily in, invested in them uh, at that point, and um, you know we had thousands of bushels of the of oysters. As did most of the most of the state. I think 
lot of natural recruitment and, you know, uh, things were going pretty well. But these two, uh, two paras parasites, actually, uh, I think they're, it's a, uh, well, Vibrio is a virus, MSX, I guess they're both, uh, they're both viruses. But they, um, uh, they decimated the, uh, the oyster population and they down, uh, there was maybe 10%, not wiped out 90% of the oysters. So all of a sudden, uh, over the course of one winter, we had uh, a lot of shell, basically, <laughs> with no oysters in it. And for me personally, it cost uh, two boats, two crews. And, um, and I think the spinoff was that what happened, uh, I mean, there were a number of things that happened, but we, uh, for, on, on one hand, we, uh, we started working with the state and generally, uh, the state is in your, you know, we're in the business with the state. Uh, they they control everything we do, really, and and um, so so we we end up, uh, you know, working with them closely, and you have these close relationships with them. Uh, we ended up taking the uh, oysters that survived and uh, spawning them, having them spawned in a laboratory, and then I. I had a nursery on the put a nursery on my dock, and we raised um, uh, oysters up there. That would the idea being that they were uh, resistant to the uh, to uh, the viruses. So um, and then repop, you know, uh, put the put the the oysters back onto the ground, and and that they would spawn, and uh, it would create a resistant strain. And uh, in the process, we raised probably the most expensive oysters ever <laughs> they, yeah. they, they, they they cost us about you know a buck and a half uh a piece to uh yeah. you know to, to to raise up to to uh size and the uh uh and at the time the market we could only get a quarter for them you know so yeah. but yeah. uh so so that was one spinoff and then then the uh uh, but we, you know, we kept at it and, and, uh, you know, it was, I think that was, I mean, everybody was trying to do their part. And I think that that, that was just part of it. And, uh, eventually, you know, they, they came back, uh, you know, beautifully, the, um, and appear to be, uh, you know, resistant, uh, to the disease. We also developed strategies for harvesting, um, around, uh, the virus and, uh, it tends to attack uh, older oysters, and so you would get them to market size earlier. And, but it it, it kind of shifted um, in a way the way people looked at them, and 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 I think it was really uh, started kind of the beginning of of uh, cage culture uh, in, in this country, mm. uh, or certainly on the east east coast here, um, uh, yeah. where. Before that, people had been um, uh, growing them on, you know, primarily on the bottom, which still goes on, and uh, right. is a great way to do it. Um, but the uh, there's a lot less regulation actually uh, in terms of that. But it it's and but you maximize uh, the the, uh, the oyster because you know what you have. You it, it, when it's in a cage, you know. How many you have in the cage? 
you know, you can easily keep an eye on them. Um, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're available to you. One of the other things that uh, happened with the pandemic was is that the, uh, it put a lot of pressure on the hard clams uh, as the companies uh, shifted over um, in, you know, in order to keep their boats and businesses afloat, um, yeah. uh, shifted over to hard clams. And um, there was, uh, I think during that period of time, a, a tremendous uh, uh, amount of hard clams were harvested and uh, marketed. And um, which I think down the road kind of reduced the biomass. And um, uh, we certainly saw it here that uh, we started to experience declining catches. And um, I would uh, self-regulate my take for a, for a day. Uh, an old timer once told me, he said, oh, so Johnny, always leave yourself, uh, you know, a spot to go and a place to make a day's pay, and so which was mm. good advice, you know. And uh, and yeah. um, uh, so uh, so that's so that's what I did, and and uh, you know, rather than go to town on it, um, you know, we were, I was I was managing the resource on the in the areas that I had. And, uh, you know, had that luxury because I wasn't, um, you know, competing with someone else uh, for that same product. But, uh, you know, there was there was a tremendous amount of um, of uh, hard clams were harvested during that period. And, you know, I, I think collectively it, it impacted the, the hard clam uh, uh, harvests uh, afterwards. You know, it'd be interesting. I've, I've never done it, but it'd be interesting to look at the uh, the numbers there and just see uh, how that collated to that period of time. Um, yeah. You know, it it, it uh, you know this is just a a thought that I've had about it, but um, so uh, yeah, so that was uh, that was that was basically it. The oysters have come back. Um, uh, big time, and um, you know we we do both uh, plant shell and also um, seed oystering um, as well. Uh, moving uh, oysters, uh, seed oysters, out of um, rivers and then plant them on our grounds or plant them in cages. So gotcha. Now um, you had mentioned everything that you had gone through, John, as an industry with those viruses, and Emily. I believe an event such as that is kind of what led you down the path to study microbiology. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, as a kid growing up where I did, perhaps unsurprisingly, my first life plan was to be a marine mm -hmm. biologist. Um, however, going through sort of witnessing and, and being part of everything that was going on with the oyster and um, and clam populations and recognizing also um, I have a love of mysteries and forensic science and things like that. As I was sort of shaping my path, I realized that um, microbiology sort of gave me access to all aspects that I was interested in. So 
the idea of a causative agent and something that, you know, sort of tracking down what is the source of these diseases that were happening in the oyster population. I'm just very fascinated by things at that small level. So I went up to McGill University and in Montreal and I studied environmental microbiology while I was there, which allowed me to sort of look at it actually in a different way. I did most of my focus when I was up there in um, farming, but uh, swine and pig farming was the focus of my my research um, when I was up there looking at strains of pneumonia that infect pigs on farms. So it was interesting to kind of focus on a terrestrial aspect um, as opposed to an aquatic one, but that's certainly where this interest in microbiology started. Em also wanted to be an FBI agent at one point. <laughs> I did, I did. I went, and, I went and had a conversation with them and everything. Yeah, yeah, you got your pistol license too, right? I did. <laughs> I seriously considered it. But figured, you know, sort of changed path as time went on right. to to something a little a little different. Yeah. yeah. Now now that the oyster stocks are healthy, you both have helped Connecticut in chartering a new course for the future. I mean, techniques have changed from raising oysters on the bottom of the ocean to now raising them in cages. So uh, John and Emily, maybe you can talk about the new methods of farming and also the regulations that you have to follow to keep the industry thriving. Okay, I I, I guess I'll lead off. And there, uh, right now, there's uh, you know uh, two, two or three kind of popular uh, um, ways of growing uh, growing oysters in in cages, and uh, there's <clears throat> floating cages, um, cages that are. Uh, Underwater on 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 long, kind of long lines, and, um, and then I guess uh, there's also uh, a lot of sort of innovative techniques where they're using, uh, say, marinas and putting cages under the docks in the marinas and growing out uh, seed oysters um, in these docks and then transplanting them out uh, either onto bottom. Uh, cages that are put on the bottom, but they're they're covered with a mesh, so that <clears throat> they're they're almost um, you know it's a great idea because they're they're somewhat contained and protected from predators, which is the idea. Um, but they're also um, by being contained, they're they're available. So. Uh, so what's happened is, is that um, at least here in the Thimbles, um, a while ago, uh, the state acquired the grounds um, and have started a program, an initiative for smaller uh, operators um, in the state to get started in the aquaculture industry. And what that is involved is uh, they, the state will license you um, on five acres of ground. And, um, and then basically you have a, you have that area in which to propagate your shellfish. And uh, M and I have been functioning um, as uh, sort of uh, mentors, um, in uh, in this program, there are 
also uh, two other individuals that are involved in the program that also uh, mentor. And um, and uh, it's it's sort of a fledgling uh, operation. Um, the 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 paperwork for um, uh, starting one of these uh, cage farms is um, daunting mm-hmm. <laughs> the, uh, because you have to go through the Army Corps of Engineers, aquaculture, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, uh, DEP, um, uh, Department of Environmental Protection, and there may may be East Shore District Health, local uh, local health department, and uh, there are classifications of growing areas, uh, areas that uh, that are open year round, areas that are closed uh, because of water quality uh, after significant rainfalls. Um, you know, and this is all it's all good stuff because it essentially. Uh, the permitting process uh, identifies all the uses for, uh, you know, the, any given uh, piece of ground or bottom, and or the water above it. So, in other words, if you have a, uh, you know, a, a ferry line or uh, that's running through uh, one area, you don't want to put a lot of cages there. Yeah. Because otherwise they'd have to go around, and there's a lot of competing use. Yeah. I mean, in, in the in the summertime, Thimble Islands are alive with people. Yeah, I mean there there are a lot of people <laughs> here, uh, and it, you know it's 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 becoming we joke because we're saying yeah it's getting like you know Provincetown down yeah. here, right? But yeah, which is a lot different than when we were kids, right. you know. But but um, uh, but in the wintertime, it's just us and the seals. Yeah, you know? oh, no, that's it. I mean. And and the workmen. I mean, right. you're. Uh, you know, I was out. Uh, was it yesterday? And uh, you know, it's 22 degrees. There's uh, there's nobody around. Right. And and it it's uh, again, it's stunningly beautiful. Yeah. Um, you know. Well, it it, 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 it it is. That's why people flock there in the summer. Like I said, I absolutely. I, I, yeah. I had not been there, and when I got to take that tour the first time I saw the Thimble Islands, I was like, wow. I mean, it, it feels like a magical place. And I think part of that may also be the thought and notion that people have today because they have so many distractions with electronics that it just seems like this peaceful, serene place that's kind of untouched by modern day in some ways. Well, in, in, in a lot of ways it is. And, and, it, and, and one of the great things about it is, is it has this winter season where there really isn't a lot of activity. I mean, the, the birds are, the birds here, the, you know, seasonal migration of, um, uh, you know, the, these migratory birds coming through these gulls from the Arctic, you mm-hmm. know, that come down in the wintertime. I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it, you see this stuff, you, you know, you, it's, it's unbelievable. Snowy owls, yeah. um, you know, it, it, it's, it's uh, the, the seals that come and go. Now the seals, uh, you know they they're a bit of a problem because they're um, you know they're they're there's a lot of them yes. and they're big yes. and and they're you know they're they're huge predators they are and 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 people wonder where all the where, where all the lobsters went mm-hmm. <laughs> you know probably you know 
what, one thing that a seal loves is, uh, you know, is a lobster, mm -hmm. right? Or a crab, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they're, you know, the, these things weigh 300 pounds there. I mean, they're, 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 they're amazing. I, I've seen them in the, in the, uh, in the spring of the year. Um, I, I used to catch, uh, flounder and the flounder would be, I catch them in the dredge and the flounder would be, um, the, the stomach area would be eaten out. Mm. Um, you know, like something taking a bite out yeah. of it. And I'm going, what the heck is this? And, uh, and then I saw this, it was a damnedest thing. I saw the seal <laughs> on its back holding this flounder in between his flippers. Oh. Yeah. And they were just, you know, they'd gone along and, and what happened was that the flounder come in and feed behind the oyster boat because we're turning up, churning up the bottom. Right. So there's little worms and things coming up and the flounder are feeding on that. Seals are coming in and feeding on the flounder. <laughs> <laughs> So it's all connected, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, and that's in one, in one hand, that's part of the beauty of it. Yeah. And, and I just want to say one more thing about the, uh, the regulation yeah. and, uh, you know, the, the hurdles that, that one has to go through in order to get involved in this. Um, you know, you really have to, there's, there has to be something else that's driving you besides the money <laughs> you know because yeah. because it, it's uh you know you got to love being out there and uh, uh but the the other thing is is that all this regulation that has um uh developed over the last number of years is 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 great because it not only it defines uh you know where the problems are but also it protects the shell fishermen as well as the you know the other residents in the in the area so that um i mean it, it really defines you know where everything is and 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 i think that ultimately that's good and um i mean i i'm really in it at this point for the continuum mm -hmm. of uh shell fishing uh in the in the thimble islands and in this area this area this this area has uh has a significant history from the early 1700s of oystering and uh you know i i uh against all these other pressures i i you know i'm, I'm really committed to seeing it continue you know i think it's an important activity yeah for sure and you know that's why i have to say that uh, the new generation coming in are lucky to have you mentor these small scale, you know, aquaculture operators. And in our conversations before you've told me about, you know, it, it, it's about the continuum and it's about sustainability. And I appreciate the work that you're doing and the work that Emily, you know, is doing as well. So John, if I asked you to describe in words for our listeners to paint a perfect day out there on the water, what would that be like for you? Oh, <laughs> an early start on a calm morning, mm. you know, a nice clear morning with a, uh, <laughs> go, going to a, uh, going to one of our pr productive beds and, uh, you know, with a nice, nice, nice order for, uh, maybe 30, 40 bags of, uh, our finest and, um, you know, no breakdowns and, uh, in, in, in early and uh, at high tide, so it's easier to unload, 
you know? <laughs> yeah, that would really do it. But, uh, you know, what? one of the beautiful things about, about it out here and, uh, you know, even, even the days that are rough and, uh, you know, can be a tad uncomfortable that they even have a certain kind of beauty and uh, just being out there and having that be part of your activity, uh, you know, that that's what you do is um, extremely gratifying, uh, I find. And, and Emily, since, you know, many of our listeners are not from this area, maybe you could describe the seasonality and the like cyclical nature of the ocean, you know, out in the thimbles. So as a part of Long Island Sound there, you know, this area and the, the geography of it is protected in some ways. However, inherently, and as um, being an ocean and having tidal aspect to it, um, there is a component that as we go through the season really changes how the water acts sort of in all ways. It's really wonderful. We looked out yesterday and everything was just so blue gray, right? Even the color of the water changes over time. With an oyster business, the sort of the, the turn of phrase is that the months that end in R are the months when you harvest your oysters or oysters are the best. So our business inherently has a component of it that happens during that winter period <laughs> when things are a little chilly. Um, but it really, that's when you're going to get some of the best stock and, and the best oysters. And then it, as we move towards those summer months, when the oysters are spawning and going through their reproductive process, that is a time to allow them to, to do that and to not be harvesting them. And that's when we can turn our work to other things within the, within the industry and maintenance of boats and keeping our, our shop where we have our um, boatyard and our rail up and operational. And you, know, you do have to have sort of an eye on what the, the weather and the environment is doing. So we respond to that mm -hmm. to a certain degree uh, within what we want to be able yeah. to accomplish. Now, I always like, I, I like to end my sessions with a message of hope for our ocean. And I'm hoping that you could provide our listeners uh, with hope in what you're seeing. So I'll let each of you take a turn if that's okay, John. Sure, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll lead off Em. I, um, mm -hmm. You know, over the years uh, that I've been involved in this, um, I've seen the water quality improve, um, believe it or not. Uh, I think we have a lot better um, handle on water quality um, due to the testing and, you know, of our growing areas and uh, corrections that were made in septic systems and uh, you know, various, uh, the, the water pollution authority and the, uh, uh, sewage treatment plants and things like that. And they're, they're, <clears throat> you know, a lot more on top of this stuff than they used to be. And, um, I mean, we do have, uh, you know, problem, larger, larger issues, I guess, with acid rain and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful that, uh, that, you know, with uh, these environmental, um, you know, uh, re restrictions uh, on 
some of these pollution uh, these areas that that this this trend will really continue, and I think it has. And uh, you know, as they reduce uh, car emissions and things like that, it's going to uh, it's going to make huge impact on um, you know on the area. The um, I mean, even during the slowdown in the early days of the pandemic, when there was a lot less, when people were really sheltering in place and everything, uh, there was a lot. Uh, you can notice changes in the uh, in the local environment. Birds, um, you know, I don't know. It just seemed uh, it seemed uh, seemed a lot better. And I, uh, you know, I can definitely vouch for the, uh, you know, scientifically for the water quality in the uh, in this in this this area of Long Island Sound has improved greatly. Um, uh, and I I really think that. There is a growing awareness uh, in the general public of uh, environmental issues, and you know more and more. And that uh, you know, as as our children grow older and uh, are able to um, become more active in this, they've they've grown up with this stuff, and uh, you know they're they're going to be uh, the leaders in the future, and uh, and. You know, I think I really, I really believe that things are going to, um, uh, you know, change for the better. And right. um, uh, you know, I'm I'm hopeful for that. I I tend to be an optimist. I I, uh, <laughs> I you know, every day I go out, I you know, I'm hoping it's going to be a good one. So. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, no, but I you know, truthfully, I I I really do. Um, yeah, you know, nature is incredibly uh, uh, resilient, and um, you know, it's funny how, like, encyclical one one thing will sort of uh, go by the wayside, and something else will come in and fill its place. And and uh, and this, you know, this is happening um, happening here. You know, with warming, you know, we might not be lobstering so much here, but we may be uh, ending up, you know crabbing or shrimping or something you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> down the road so uh you know i think uh i'm i'm, uh, I'm bullish on it emily how about you yeah so i you know i look at it from a couple perspectives i'm a i teach in a high school um i teach biology and so i think jonathan's point about the youth and sort of the next generation continuing on this positivity and this um, desire to to pay attention to the environment and to take care of our, our oceans and our, our water sources um, is really important and making sure that they have contact in one way or another with the ocean is really key because that link, at least for me, was so important and allowed me to really understand more deeply um, the impact and, and what's at stake. And so trying to find ways to expose the next generation um, to places that they may never get a chance to travel to, um, whether it's through podcasts or TV or books, um, as ways to get them to understand that there is a stake, there is something at stake that's important and that they can actually impact some change. I also... I'm really impressed with the uh, 
sort of on the state level, how involved and how supportive currently the state of Connecticut is with this oyster um, initiative and, and, and taking care of the oyster stock and the grounds in Connecticut, because that is allowing for a sustainable farming um, perspective, which is really important if we're going to keep our waters healthy um, going forward. Yeah, well, I agree. And I want to thank you both. Thank you, Jonathan and Emily Waters, for that message of hope. And thank you for being on our Future Frogmen podcast. Thank you, Colleen. This, is a, this has been a lot of fun. And- yeah, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thank you. It was wonderful to chat about yeah. all of these things. Yep. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. You can find us at our website at futurefrogmen.org or on social media at Future Frogmen. We post every week. So until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks. <laughs>